Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before I introduce Joel to you, since tonight is, do you know what day this is? It's Passover. I brought something from Israel. Oh, there it is. I brought this from Israel. And you say, no, wait a minute. You've had one of these before. No, I borrowed the last ones that I had. And this one has a unique tone all of its own. So since it is Passover and since Christ has fulfilled that feast for us, wouldn't it be great before Joel comes up, not to announce his coming, but, <laughs> but to thank the Lord for fulfilling Passover for us. Wouldn't it be great to hear the blast of the shofar the trumpet? Okay, so who could I have do that? No, I'll, I'll try it. I'll try it. Ready? I haven't done this much, but... There you go. There it is. Happy Passover, shofar, show good. Would you please welcome Joel Rosenberg. Thank you. What an honor to be here and what a great way to begin. Although I was a little concerned when he said he was going to announce you know, his coming, I just didn't want to get zapped up here if I came up next. So... He's obviously referring to Jesus, and it's going to be exciting. I believe that Jesus is coming back very much, very possibly in our lifetime. Can I say that for sure? No, I can't say it for sure, but I'm excited, and I see a lot of signs that suggest that we may be a lot closer to prophetic events uh, than, uh, than many of us realize. And one of the, thing, the joys of being in Jerusalem, on the, not on this tour, but this epicenter conference with Pastor Skip and Pastor Chuck and the others, was an opportunity in Jerusalem at the International Convention Center to talk about the prophecies that are being fulfilled and that are coming. And, you know, Jesus uh, talked to his disciples in Acts chapter 1. He said, power would come upon you, and I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And I think it was just a tremendous privilege to be able to teach the Word of God, uh, both Ezekiel 36 and 37, the dramatic events of the rebirth of Israel in the last days, and Jews coming back to the land and rebuilding the ancient ruins and making the deserts bloom. Uh, Pastor Skip taught on that. And then Pastor Chuck taught on Ezekiel 38 and 39, how in the last days, after Israel is reborn, Russia will start to form a military alliance with Iran with Libya, and with a group of other countries to surround and then attack Israel in those last days. And then we had uh, the former director of the CIA, Porter Goss, who was speaking by video, talking about these threats today. Why is Iran feverishly trying to build, buy, or steal nuclear weapons? Why is Russia working so closely with Iran when Russia and Iran have never had this type of military, economic, and political relationship in the 2,500 years since Ezekiel wrote uh, the War of Gog and Magog prophecies. 
And, uh, and Porter Goss just walked us through that after being the director of the CIA, after being the head of the House Intelligence Committee for 10 years, after being an, a NOC, a non-official cover operative for the CIA. So tremendous uh, insight from him. Then we had Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, uh, who is a believer. He is also the former head of Delta Force uh, and was the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence uh, until just last August when he retired. What an amazing thing. This is a guy who has hunted radical Islamic jihadists all of his life. And uh, to have him uh, share from that platform his understanding of the intelligence of what's happening in the Middle East right now, in Iran, in Iraq, uh, and, the, and the threat that radical Islam poses, it was tremendous. And then uh, I had an opportunity to, to, to draw some of that together. And finally, we had, uh, well, we had uh, by video uh, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And then we had the Deputy Speaker of the Israeli uh, Knesset, or Parliament, a gentleman by the name of Guidon Saar, giving an Israeli perspective live with us in front of 2,000 uh, people at that conference. Uh, the, the sense of urgency, the fact that Israel is preparing right now for war. While we were there, while our tours were there, Israel conducted the largest, most extensive set of uh, civilian war game operations ever, trying to prepare a, their homeland security system for whatever war may be coming soon. Five days, a massive operation all through the country, over a million school children having to learn what to do in case Israel is hit with thousands upon thousands of missiles, some of which could have chemical, biological, or nuclear warheads. This is the world in which we live. This is the world in which we just returned from. And what a privilege, as well as an awesome responsibility, to talk about the Word of God and what the Bible says is coming and what our responsibilities are in light of the very real and urgent threats that uh, the people of Israel and her neighbors face right now. And it was a joy and honor to, to be there with Skip, and I just want to thank you and him and his team for, put, for helping us put together this conference. Uh, it was, of course, webcast, uh, gavel to gavel, and that's now archived at uh, epicenter08.com. And uh, people can also uh, pre-order now the full set of the eight hours worth of material, and they also have a two-hour version, too. And that's all being uh, produced and developed by uh, Skip's team here. So I, I want to thank you among other things, this Passover night, for your partnership uh, with me and my team at the Joshua Fund. Because these things, this isn't fiction, right? I started off six years ago, seven years ago, as a failed political consultant, helping all kinds of people lose their elections. And I thought, you know, I, I don't know how much I can do this, how much longer, you know, how many more people can I help lose? Eventually that sort of runs out. People want to hire people who help people win. So I thought, well, maybe I could make up things for a living. And so I began to write novels. Uh, I wanted to base them on Bible prophecy and how these end times prophecies might play out, particularly the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and 39, what we call the War of Gog and Magog. What would happen? How would that look? What would be the things that might have to lead up to that war? And how might that war play out? What would happen next? And... Uh, I had no idea what would happen, um, though the Washington Post called my first novel, The Last Jihad, an act of terrorism against the reader's brain. Uh, that was very sweet and kind of them, but 
you know, as, uh, you know, based on my political background, I'm out of politics now. I've gone through deep political detox. I'm out. I'm clean. <laughs> but uh, based on my political background, uh, being attacked by the Washington Post is actually a, a badge of honor. So we had gotten that word out to all kinds of radio stations around the country that they hated the book. And then I got hundreds of interview requests saying if they hated it, we might like it. So, but that opened up a whole world. And you know, I was trying to write fiction about what could happen, how these prophecies in the scriptures could play out. And that started a national conversation uh, that set into motion uh, some of the things I want to talk to you about tonight. So if, you, if you're open there now to 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, I want to walk through some verses line by line, dig into them a bit, and then, and then draw some conclusions and uh, draw some observations out and ask the question, so what? What does it mean, uh, what, what we're about to read? Second Kings, chapter 6, verse 8. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel. Okay, let's TiVo that for a second. Already you're like, Aram, what's Aram? You know, uh, that's Syria. That's the ancient name. It's the Arameans. Uh, this is the Syrians, okay? So uh, we're going to get into a little bit of, of the threats that Syria is posing to Israel right now. But the king of Syria was planning to war, to go to war against Israel. Some things have not changed in thousands of years. So this king of Syria counseled with his servants saying, Look, in such and such place shall be my camp. And then the man of God, Elisha, the prophet, sent word to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you do not pass this particular place, for the Arameans, the Syrians, are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent his troops to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that the king of Israel guarded himself there more than once or twice. You see what's happening? Uh, the, the king of Syria is, is deciding, I'm going to attack Israel. So he picks a place that I think he thinks, I'll converge my forces there to launch this massive attack. But every time he gets there, the king of Israel already has his forces amassed in defensive preparations. So, and, and why is he doing this? How does, how does the king of Israel know? Because Elijah the prophet is telling him. Verse 11. Now, the, king, the heart of the king of Syria was enraged over this thing. Not surprising. And he called his servants and said, Will you tell me which one of us is for the king of Israel? Now, you have to do a little Bible translation, uh, not just from the Hebrew up to English, but from English into 21st century English, what he means is, who's the mole? Who's leaking? Who's the traitor? Who's the Benedict Arnold? The Yitzhak Arnold, or the, you know, uh, actually this would be the Ahmed Arnold, I guess. (laughs) You know, who's selling me out here? I mean, every time I go to attack Israel, they're already ready for me. So it must be one of you guys who's who's giving the, uh, you know, giving the playbook away. But one of the servants of the king of Syria says, no, oh Lord, my king, it's not us, he says. But Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Amazing. I believe that prophecy, Bible prophecy, is an intercept from the mind of God. I believe it's an advanced intelligence of what's coming. And sometimes God decides in certain countries at certain times to give us advanced intelligence of what the enemy is doing. And sometimes he tells us what he's going to be doing. And this was one of those times. Verse 13. So the king of 
Syria said, Go and see where he is, where Elisha is, that I may send and take him. That's Bible talk for take him out. You know, this, the king is mad. He's like, forget, forget wiping all of Israel off the map right now. Show me where this, this Elijah is. We're going to go after him first, and then we'll take care of the rest of the country. So the intelligence forces go out, and they find out that Elisha is in this town called Dothan. So the king of Syria, verse 14, sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night, and they surrounded the city. Now, when the attendant of the man of God, uh, Elisha's personal assistant, had risen early and gone out of the tent, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? That's, again, that's Bible under, understatement for, Ah! <laughs> got to be kidding me. He is, you know... We Jews have a little bit of pessimism in us, and, but you know this, this had, he had all the reason to be pessimistic. You know, sometimes comp- conspiracy theorists have real enemies, you know? And here's, he's seeing a situation where they're totally surrounded. I mean, there's literally no hope. It's two against all of them. So he, wa- he goes to warn his master, but it's not really warn them like there's a plan. It's just, we're doomed. We're cooked. Our goose is cooked. That's what my father would say. Verse 16, Elisha answers... Very relaxed. You can almost picture him having a Starbucks. He says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you can't see it in your version between 16 and 17, but I, when you listen closely, I hear, Are you kidding me? This is the assistant to Elijah going, Have you looked outside? Have you seen what I've seen? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Have you completely lost your mind? Uh, you know, it's just two of us. You know, Achad Stein, one, two, it, it, and then there's all of them, and they've got all the forces and the, and, the, and the chariots and the armies, and they're ready to kill us. And you're like, there's more of us? I mean, what, what are you smoking? <laughs> but you don't see, we don't really see that, but you can almost hear it. And what does Elisha do? Does he get freaked out? No. Elisha prayed, and he said, Oh, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and suddenly he could see. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now let's be clear. What what the attendant of Elisha, his his personal assistant, saw was not inaccurate. They were surrounded. It was just two of them, humanly speaking, against all of the Syrian army. It wasn't inaccurate what the assistant saw, but it was incomplete. He could not see at that moment what Elisha could see. He could not see at the moment the situation the way God saw it. And when he did, when he could, when Elisha prayed and the Lord did open his eyes... The, 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 the situation on the ground itself hadn't changed, but all the situations around it. You know, he got a fuller picture. And I think in many ways, this is a challenge for us. What, what go, the, the, the text goes on where Elisha, now that his assistant sees clearly, then prays that the Lord would blind the eyes of the Syrians. Okay, so open the eyes of my assistant and then blind the eyes of the Syrians... 
And then he, he's so confident that the Lord has answered that prayer that the, that the Syrians are now blinded that they literally walk right up to the Syrians and they say, can we help you? And they say, yeah, we're looking at the guy Elijah. We want to kill him. Great, let me, follow me. I'll guide you to him. And they lead him right, they lead the Syrian army right into a cul-de-sac where they're surrounded by the Israeli army. And there's a great victory for Israel. You know, in many ways, I think we look at what ha- what's happening in the Middle East and we can get very discouraged. We can get very discouraged. We look at, you know, our country is completely divided right now over what to do in Iraq. Bitterly divided. I, you know, I have this new uh, political thriller that just came out a few weeks ago called Dead Heat. It's about a country that's bitterly divided uh, over a series of wars in the Middle East. And there's two presidential campaigns, two presidential candidates who are going at each other with two completely different visions of what to do in the Middle East. And, they, and, the, and the country's so divided that it's, in a, it's such a closely contested election that it's a dead heat. And then a whole series of horrible events take place that I won't get into tonight. This is not a sermon about dead heat. But I just pray to God that what I've written about fictionally never comes true. Because, it, because this is a worst-case scenario in the novel, but we are looking at a world in which radical Islamic jihadists, make no mistake, they do not seek to frighten us. They don't even seek really to terrorize us. That's really a misnomer. They seek to annihilate us. Yes, maybe at one point they wanted to uh, set off some bombs and fly some planes and, and do some things that would, that would unnerve us, that would rattle us. But that is no longer the goal. That is no longer the goal. As we uh, talked at the Epicenter Conference from this former CIA director and uh, former Israeli prime minister and this former head of Delta Force, what they and, and so many other experts have come to the conclusion in recent years that the radical Islamic jihadists are looking for a grand finale. They are looking for a situation, a, a scenario, in which they can literally obliterate Judeo-Christian civilization as we know it. A year ago, the former CIA director, a different one, George Tenet, said, based on his years of experience, he believes that al-Qaeda's number one goal at this moment is to acquire nuclear weapons and to detonate them inside the United States. The current Homeland Security Secretary, Michael Chertoff, uh, on September 10th of last year, as he was commemorating the attacks on 9-11-2001, said publicly that he and his team at Homeland Security are preparing actively for the very real possibility of nuclear detonations going off inside the United States. He didn't say he had actionable intelligence that it was going to happen soon, but this is what they are preparing for. This is not fiction. This is the world that we have today. Now, has it happened yet? No, thank God it hasn't. But just while we were in, uh, in Israel, literally, literally 24 hours, no, 48 hours before the epicenter conference, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad declared that Iran now has 6,000 centrifuges. These are machines that are spinning uranium in, a, in such a way to enrich it, not simply to get it to be ready for use in a peaceful nuclear power plant. Russia is selling Iran the uh, enriched uranium for that purpose. But Iran has got these uh, centrifuges, and everybody believes at this point 
that they are doing so to enrich it to military standards. Why? Because they want to build nuclear weapons. They have said we're going to wipe Israel off the map. The president of Iran has urged the Muslim world to envision a world without the United States. He said in a speech in the fall of 2005, is this possible? A world without America, a world without Zionism, that is Israel. It is, he said, when our holy hatred strikes like a wave. Iran is feverishly trying to build, buy, or steal nuclear weapons to accomplish nuclear jihad, nuclear annihilation of two countries. And they believe, the president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, believes that the way to hasten the coming of the Islamic Messiah, known as the 12th Imam or the hidden Imam or the Mahdi, the way to hasten his appearance on earth, Ahmadinejad believes, is to annihilate two countries, Israel, whom he calls the little Satan, and the United States, whom he calls the great Satan. And countries like Russia are helping to arm and equip this country that is bent on apocalyptic objectives genocidal objectives. And make no mistake, if Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and his regime can acquire nuclear warheads and attach them to the high-speed ballistic missiles that he already has, Ahmadinejad could do in six minutes what it took Adolf Hitler six years to do, and that is to kill six million Jews. We gather tonight on Passover to remember a Middle East tyrant that tried to enslave the Jews. Never really tried to wipe them out as a people, but certainly to enslave them for 400 years. And God finally stepped in, and the spirit of death moved on that nation that was an enemy of Israel. Based on a principle from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, those who bless Israel, God says he will bless. Those who curse Israel... God says he will curse. And all these years later, celebrating the Passover as I did with dear friends here in Albuquerque tonight, I'm reminded that the spirit, of, the angel of death is preparing to move again in the Middle East. When? I, I cannot tell you. How? I don't know. But the forces of the enemies of Israel are preparing for war. Thursday, April 17th, Agence France Press headline, Ahmadinejad says Iran, world's most powerful nation, and warns that the, uh, Israel will cease to exist soon. April 17th, Thursday, Jerusalem Post, uh, uh, Syrian President Assad says Syria preparing for war. April 14th, uh, a radio network outside of, uh, outside of, inside of Lebanon, quotes a Palestinian Authority representative in Lebanon saying, the PLO will proceed through phases. They will not change. Once they get Jerusalem, they will drive all Jews out of Palestine. This is just a few days ago. And then as we were talking about in the previous times that I've come here, Ezekiel 38 and 39, what we talked about at the Epicenter Conference, where Russia builds this alliance with Iran. Guess where Putin was? Vladimir Putin, the, the emerging czar of Russia. Where was he in October of last year? He was in Iran. First time in 
since 1943 that a Russian leader has ever visited Iran. And in 1943, he wasn't building an alliance with Iran then. He was just meeting with Churchill. Uh, this was Joseph Stalin. Meeting with Churchill, meeting with Roosevelt to talk, about the, to talk about World War II. But now Putin has been to Iran to build this alliance. And the Ezekiel prophecies talk about Russia will also build an alliance with Libya. And where was Vladimir Putin? On Thursday and Friday of this week, he was in Libya. First time a Russian leader has ever, ever traveled to Tripoli, the capital, capital of Libya. And what was he there for? Was he sightseeing? No. He was building a series of relationships, signing more than 14 agreements, one of which is a $2.5 billion arms deal to get Libya ready for their next war. This is the world in which we live. The world is preparing for war against Israel. And the question for us is, Lord, open our eyes. How do we, can we help us to understand the geopolitical threats that our country faces from radical Islamic jihadists, among others, and open our eyes to the threats facing Israel as she approaches her 60th anniversary. A prophetic event. 60 years ago, Israel did not exist. 60 years ago today, the country of Israel did not exist. The Bible is the only document in human history that said for the last 2,000 years that one day Israel would be reborn as a country, that the Jews would come back to the land, that they would make the deserts bloom, that they'd rebuild the ancient ruins, that they'd have an exceedingly great army. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 37. It's the only document in human history that said Israel would be reborn. Most people in the world did not believe this. Study the history of Christendom. Most Christians did not believe this. May 14th, 1948. God made good on his promise. And if God has made good on these dramatic end times prophecies, I think it raises the question, isn't it remotely possible that he might keep the rest of his promises? I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I got, I'm siding on, yeah, I think that's probably possible. In fact, I'm going to bank on it. And the question there is, since we do not know when Jesus is coming back, the sooner the better, I say, since we do not know when the war of Gog and Nagog is going to play out, maybe, you know, maybe it'll happen the next few months or years. I mean, based on what's happening in the world, this is not unreasonable. We don't know that to be sure. And God in his sovereignty could kick the prophetic can up the road. 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But what if he doesn't? Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see the world the way you see it. Help us see with a sober understanding of what the world is doing. Help us to understand evil. One of the themes of my novel series, up to and including Dead Heat, is this line spoken by my fictional former head of the Mossad or the Israel CIA to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. To misunderstand the nature and the threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. There are too many in Washington, D.C., where my wife and kids and I live. Too many in this country, too many in the EU and the UN, too many who have a Western, secular, modern mindset. They simply do not understand. Many of them do not even believe in the existence of evil as a force in history. It's the Bible that teaches us that, Israel is re that evil is real. 
and that it will regather in the last days and it will strike. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to understand the world the way you see it. But also, Lord, don't just help us to open our eyes to understand the, uh, Ahmadinejad and, and, and the president of Syria and the head of Hezbollah and all these countries that are preparing to attack us and Israel. Help us, Lord, open our eyes that we may understand you better, that we may know you, that we may experience you, that we may understand what is your plan and purpose for us, for our congregations, for the church worldwide. And, and what is your plan and purpose for Israel? What is your plan and purpose for the people of Iraq and Iran and the neighboring countries? I mean, let's be clear. The Bible talks of, speaks of a horrible judgment eventually coming upon the enemies of Israel because the countries of, uh, that are surrounding Israel are cursing Israel every day, every day, every day. And there's a biblical principle that they are kicking against. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, those who bless Israel, God says he will bless. Those who curse Israel, he will curse. There's a day of judgment. There's a day of reckoning. But we shouldn't be looking forward to that day. I would humbly submit to you that we need to follow the words of Jesus who who said, love your neighbors and love your enemies. God in his sovereignty will bring judgment and correction and, and sometimes vengeance upon those who are against him and against his people. But I don't think we should be in the business of being excited about that. I think we should be in the business of saying, Lord, how can we be a blessing to Israel, your people? How can we love them? How can we bless them? How can we care for them? And harder though that is, how can we love Israel's enemies? How can we love Israel's neighbors? Some of that's the same. And that's a big question. It's a big question of the Joshua Fund. This is why uh, Lynn and I started the Joshua Fund a little over two years ago. And Skip had, was, you know, was gracious to let me come out and preach the first time. Are we living in the last days? We walk through those prophecies. The, the answer is yes. If you want any more details, I think they've got a tape there someplace. The second one was how do we live in the last days? And we, and we began to describe, we had just started the, the Joshua Fund, whose mission is to encourage and mobilize Christians all over the world to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, according to Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Look, I'm a failed political consultant. I've been in Washington 18 years. I haven't made a dent, okay? Let's just be honest. Nobody's listening to me in that city. I, I, I'm not... I'm not able to, to, to redirect U.S. foreign policy or economic policy. I mean, I mean, you know, Steve Forbes and I, I worked for him for four years. We traveled all over the country. Uh, you know, the flat tax, the flat tax, the flat tax. You know who adopted the flat tax? Vladimir Putin. I mean, I've got no influence, all right? I mean, I'm just saying. That was not our plan. I mean, it just, you know. So... I'm not saying that building a political movement to bless Israel, to stand with her, is wrong. It's not wrong. But that's not what I feel like the Lord is calling us to. The Joshua Fund is about humanitarian relief. How do we get food and clothing and medical supplies and all kinds of needs to those who are poor, those who are needy, those who are victims of war and terror? How do we do that in Israel that is on the front lines of radical Islam? And... As the Lord opens the door and gives us wisdom and clarity, how can we bless Iraq? How can we bless Sudan? How can we bless some of these other countries who are suffering so much right now? 
Lord, open our eyes. This is what Lynn and I have asked, and this is what our team is asking. The threats are rising, but, and so are the needs, but so are the opportunities as well. You know, one of the things that's been interesting is over the last two years since we started the Joshua Fund, Israeli government leaders have come to us and said, will, will you help us? In 2,000 years of Christendom, you've never had a situation where Israeli leaders, Jewish community leaders, are coming to evangelical Christians saying, look, we have differences, but how can we work together? When you say you love us, the evangelicals love us, can we figure out a practical way to make that real? And our answer is yes, how can we work together? We had a situation where uh, uh, there's a hospital on the southern border of Gaza. It's an Israeli hospital right near the border with Gaza. Now, you recall in the summer of 2005, then-Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon withdrew Israeli military forces from Gaza in a land-for-peace swap. So the Palestinians got the land, but Israel got 5,000 rockets and missiles. So it wasn't quite what they were intending. And, you know, uh, so it's... And and there's 500,000 Israelis that live along that southern border with Gaza. 500,000, and there's one hospital to care for them. And it's, it's, it's a small hospital, and it's a regional hospital. It's a hospital without huge fundraising friends around you know, the Jewish community. They, they, they are able to raise a significant amount of money uh, for their operations from the Jewish community worldwide, but frankly not nearly enough when there are missiles, 12, 15, 20 a day landing in and around their, their region. So my colleagues and I happened to spend some time with the leaders of that hospital, and they said, would you adopt us? That's what they said to us. Would you help us be adopted by the evangelical world to help us buy medical equipment that's so desperately needed? Literally in their operating room, the light over the the main operating table is a hairdresser lamp. Why? Because they're using every dime, every shekel, to to get the best medical equipment they can, but they just can't get what they need. And yet they are on the front lines. And so we said yes. And we've done already the first payment on um, uh, numerous pieces of medical equipment for them. We're raising more money for them now so we can get them more equipment. And we're just going to keep doing it. As long as people will invest in the Joshua Fund, we will invest in them. Do we do it with all kinds of conditions and strings attached? No. We believe in unconditional love and unwavering support. Jesus, when he was feeding the 4,000 in Galilee, when he was feeding the 5,000 on the shores of Galilee... Did he require people to get in line and fill out a little comment card and say, I'm going to be your follower, and if you, and, and, and if you, and if you didn't fill out that card, they wouldn't get food? I mean, if that's in your Bible, please come up afterwards and show me, because I, I don't have that version. I have the version that, of course, did Jesus want people to follow him? Of course he did. But when he set out to meet people's physical needs, emotional needs, he did it unconditionally unconditional love, no strings attached, with no regard to whether people would follow or not. He just wanted to show them the love of his Father. We read in Jeremiah where the, where the, the Holy Spirit says through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And I think that after 2,000 years of very difficult relations, relations between Christians and Jews, Often our fault, not yours, not mine particularly, but over 2,000 years of Christendom, we've had a lot of 
horrible things have been done in the name of Jesus by people who said they were followers of Jesus. And Jews aren't immediately all excited about welcoming people who love Jesus to help them. But something is happening now. And I think we need to respond. I I believe that God is raising up a movement around the world, a global movement of those who will pray for Israel, who will learn about what God is doing there and how they can be involved. Give uh, to ministries and to organizations that are doing effective work to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And to go, to go on prayer and vision trips like uh, some of you have just done, to go and to serve there full-time perhaps, helping with unconditional love and unwavering support. We're, we've got a ministry that we help. That's, we're, we're financing 400 tons of food to the poor and needy in Israel over the next several years. We've already provided 70 tons of food just in this past year. And there's so much more opportunity. There are bomb shelters. There's 5,500 bomb shelters in the north of Israel, none of which has food, none of which has water, none of which has lockers in them to protect that food and water if it were housed there. Now, in the 2006... Now, you have to remember, all right, dial back for a second. The year 2000, then-Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak said, look, we'll, we'll give Lebanon land for peace. So they pulled Israel's forces out of southern Lebanon, and what did they get? They got 4,000 rockets and missiles as a thank you present. Now, they didn't all have little ties and bows on them. They weren't all wrapped up in, uh, you know, in, in Christmas wrapping paper. They just came whistling in to just devastate the people of Israel. 4,000 rockets and missiles in the, summer, in, the, in the summer of 2006 hitting Israel. A million Israelis had to flee from their homes. Lord, open our eyes. How do we help people like that? How do we help? When they got the bomb shelters, there was no food in the bomb shelters. Why? Because Israel's government doesn't care? No, because Israel's government is spending so much money on defense that sometimes it runs out of the money needed to do what we would think would be basic. But okay, the Israeli government and the people of Israel are coming to the Joshua Fund, among other organizations, saying, would you help us? This is a way. You say you love Israel. I believe that you do. Here's a practical way you can help. And we're beginning. I'm not sure that we can do 5,500, but I'd love to start with 100. It's about $4,000 each to buy those lockers, get food and water and supplies and get them in there. We're going to start with 100. When we get that done, we'll ask, Lord, would you provide to go from there? $4,000 a piece. Perhaps that's something you'd like to help with. We'd love for you to get involved. There's a lot of different ways that God is opening doors. But I think the key is to be very intentional because there was a war coming. There's a war coming. Lord, you are opening our eyes, and now we see the enemies of Israel preparing. Uh, You know, we just read this. uh, this, uh, The president of Syria... Bashar Assad, in this headline just a couple days ago, Syria is preparing for war. Jerusalem Post, April 17th. It's crystal clear. And the question is, what are we doing? Are we getting ready? Are we, show, are, we, are we turning our love for Israel, what we say, our faith that God will bless Israel? Yes, but are we turning that faith into action? James tells us the faith without action is dead. Faith without works is dead. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved for works. And our, the Joshua Fund team just feels so compelled that this, the time is running out. The clock is ticking. And the clock really is in the hands of the enemy. I mean, ultimately it's in the hands of the Lord. But we don't know when the Lord's going to allow Syria and Hezbollah and Hamas and Iran 
and eventually Russia to launch these type of apocalyptic attacks. And so we've launched something called Operation Epicenter, which we announced at the Epicenter Conference, to provide $120 million worth of relief into Israel and her neighbors over the next few years. That in itself, $120 million, is actually a drop in the bucket. But it's a start. How is the Lord going to do that? I I have absolutely no idea. If you want to find out more about it, though, I would love for you to to find out what are we doing? What are the projects we've already done? What are we planning? How can you get involved? You can go to joshuafund.net. And you, and, you can, and you can read about the details. You can email us, ask us questions. You can go to the weblog that's connected to joshuafund.net and just find out what type of projects are we involved with. I think God is raising up a movement, and you guys have been at the forefront of it. But I don't, we just don't know how much time we have. And that's why this conference we just did was so important, to be part of this mobilization process. But let me close by this point. Not only do we need to ask the Lord to open our eyes to understand what's happening in the epicenter geopolitically, the threats to our country and our allies like Israel, not only do we want to ask God to open our eyes that we might see how we can be helpful to Israel and countries in that area. And I didn't have time tonight to go into my recent trip to Iraq, but basically the president of Iraq has asked us at the Joshua one to come and provide humanitarian relief to the people in his country. And some of us are going to be going back to meet with the president personally in a few months. I ask you to pray for that. The doors are opening. The leaders of Israel, the leaders of Iraq are asking us, followers of Jesus, come and help us. I don't want to go empty-handed. We need a prayer team. We need 100,000 people around the world praying faithfully, knowledgeably, consistently for the people of Israel. We'd love to get you signed up on our prayer list. We've already gotten, just in the past two years, 47,000 have signed up. And we're teaching them, what, how can you pray specifically? But not just that. I want to close tonight by saying, if you are here or you are listening and you are not someone who knows absolutely for sure that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that you've accepted God's free gift of salvation, you're not sure tonight... That if you were to die, if you were to get hit by a car or, or some other horrible thing were to happen, God forbid, that you are absolutely positive that you'd go to heaven. Then I want to invite you to come and give your life to Jesus Christ tonight. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see that you love us, that you have a plan for us, that you want to adopt us into your family. And I want to ask you right now to make the most important decision you'll ever make. And that is to come forward right here and pray with us. I'm going to ask Pastor Skip in a moment to come up and we'll pray together for you and give you an opportunity to make that decision. But I'm asking you right now, in the moments we have left, if you are not absolutely certain, I believe that the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart right now to come forward. So I ask people to close their eyes right now and bow their heads. And if you're ready to give your life to Jesus Christ, come, come forward. And don't wait. We're only going to give you a few moments to make this decision tonight, but I couldn't possibly ask you to pray about all these other things and not give you that opportunity. Some of you, you've been going to church for a long time, here perhaps, but you know in your heart you've never made that decision. You've never really asked Christ into your heart. Some of you have been away from the Lord for a long, long time. Maybe you did make that decision a long time ago. You're not entirely sure. Tonight, let this be the night that you're going to give your life to the Lord.
I'm going to pray for us. Father, as we wait for those who may have never made this decision, I pray that you would move. And I know how hard it is to to come forward publicly. But Lord Jesus, you died on the cross for us publicly. You paid the penalty for our sins publicly. However embarrassed or shameful it may have felt, you did it because you loved us. And I pray that you'd give people courage tonight to make this decision to understand how much you love them, to understand the price that you paid for them. Thank you for this congregation, Lord. Thank you for how much they have partnered with us. Lord, we are living in days that we wish were just simply fun. But tonight on this Passover night, we know we're all too cognizant that the angel of death is preparing to move again. Help us not to be frightened by it, but help us to be prepared. Spiritually, to be ready to see you at a moment's notice and to know for sure that we're going to heaven and to be prepared to bless others and to care for others in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for Skip and his team and their friendship and their kindness. I just give this over to him now and I thank you for your love and mercy. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.